Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, listeners, and welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Emily Allen, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Judith Mayer about an edited volume, The Rutledge Handbook of Festivals, published in 2019. The Rutledge Handbook of Festivals offers a comprehensive evaluation of the most current research, debates, and controversies surrounding festivals. It covers a wide range of theories, concepts, and contexts such as sustainability, festival marketing and management, the strategic use of festivals, and their futures. The handbook features a variety of disciplinary, cultural, and national perspectives from an international team of authors. Our guest today, Dr. Judith Mayer, is an associate professor and discipline leader of the Tourism Discipline Group at the University of Queensland Business School. Her research interests include pro-environmental behavior and resilience both in tourism and events, the impacts of events on community and society, consumer behavior and events in tourism, the relationship between events and climate change, and business and major events. So, Dr. Mayer, thank you so much for joining us on this new episode of New Books and Celebration Studies. Thank you for having me. Yeah, looking forward to our talk. So, before we get into the book, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So, I'm, um, as you said, an associate professor in the tourism discipline at the University of Queensland Business School, which is located in Brisbane, in Australia. Um, I worked in the tourism and events industry for 10 years and then went into academia about 15 years ago. So, I've been researching and teaching tourism and events for about 15 years now. I'm currently teaching the third year undergraduates in our program on strategic event management. And that has a lot to do with what we're talking about today in terms of the, the festival's book. Great. Sounds like you've got a lot of interesting things going. Um, we'll talk more to you about 
other stuff you're working on as well um, in a little bit. So going into the book, can you talk about also what the process of, you know, compiling and creating this edited volume was like for you and the other contributors? Uh, sure. It was mostly smooth. Uh, it was a very busy process, a long process. Um, the way it started was that Routledge approached me because I have uh, done some work for them in the past and asked me to edit this handbook. So we sent out an expression of interest call uh, across the, the academic world, looking for people who wanted to contribute their work on a number of different areas and angles to do with festivals and events. So once we had the expressions of interest, um, we narrowed that down to the 40-odd chapters that are in the book. Um, And I worked with all of the authors individually on their chapters, so helped them with the editing, with the proofing, and then we had them peer-reviewed and then um, handed it over to Routledge to do the actual production process. So all up, probably a two-year process. That makes sense. I know those kind of projects do take some time (laughs) to get together. Yeah, I think it's very well done. Um, And sticking here with kind of the big picture aspects of the book, you know, there's a key term that we need to, you know, get a foundation for really both as you do in the introduction to the book, but also here for our listeners, you know, possible definitions of festival. Can you talk about some possible you know, explanations of that for us? Sure. It's quite difficult to pin down exactly what a festival is because most of us have some experience of what we think a festival should be. Uh, And there are a number of terms that do spring to mind when we try to understand what a festival is. So obviously as an event, it's not something that happens every day. So it's a standalone thing. But usually festivals recur. So usually they happen perhaps once a year, something like that. And and being an event, they're of a short-term duration, but we know that festivals can last from an afternoon up to maybe five or six days, up to a week. So it's very difficult to pin them down even in terms of duration. And then we might think about what they're for or the purpose. And sometimes they are traditional. You know, they might be a religious celebration or a traditional harvest celebration. Sometimes they're cultural to do with a particular element of culture, a coming-of-age ceremony, something like that. Sometimes they're created with the purpose of celebrating something, so celebrating music or food, and sometimes they're simply created to bring people together. So it's actually very difficult to pin down exactly what a festival is. So I had a go uh, in the book, uh, and I have to say it's not—it's probably not the, the, the shortest definition you'll ever hear, um, but it, it, it tries to capture all of those different elements. So festivals would be short-term, recurring publicly accessible events so they're not usually private you might have to buy a ticket but they're usually still publicly accessible and they celebrate or perform elements of culture that are important to the place in which they're held or to the communities which host them and they provide opportunities for recreation and entertainment and they give rise to feelings of belonging or sharing so a lengthy definition but i think that captures all the different aspects of festivals that we might consider to be part of the phenomena. Yeah. It sounds like I I was thinking about that too, as I was writing the question, I was like, Oh, that's a hard (laughs) one to, you know, answer. Um, And, you know, sticking with, you know, like you were getting at with the introduction there, you know, you even say quote that festivals have 
hold multifaceted roles in society spanning economic development, tourism, benefits, social outcomes, and others tying into those complex, you know, definitions that you're getting at. So why do you think it is important to study festivals? What can we learn from studying them? I think there's a range of things that we can learn. So firstly, um, and getting back to that idea of culture and heritage and tradition and celebration, festivals have been part of human society for millennia. You know, way, way back uh, in history, thousands of years ago, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, they had festivals. So they're they're an integral part of what it means to be human, to come together and celebrate something. Um, So in itself, that's probably enough. But we also have noticed in the past, let's say, 20 or so years, the increasing use of festivals for economic development purposes. So festivals that are specifically created for the purposes of bringing in tourists or boosting local business. So in most towns and and cities around the world now, there's some variety of food festival or wine festival or, uh, you know, art festival, comedy festival, book festival, whatever you want to call it, there'll be some kind of festival that's often created with a specific purpose in mind. Uh, And that's often some variety of economic development or boosting local business. So for those reasons, I think um, festivals are now actually big business. So even from an economic perspective, it's important to understand them. But my interests lie a little bit more in the, the people who attend them and the people who live in the communities that host them and how having these festivals impacts their daily lives. Right. And I think you did a good job of bringing that in, um, in the attendees, you know, set of chapters you had and as we'll get to later, some Mm -hmm. of the behind the scenes, uh, who puts on the festivals too. I think that balance shines really well, um, throughout, which is good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, like you were talking about in your opening remarks there about how multifaceted all of this is, you know, there are several people that are immediately in the festivals, but there's also several people that are, you know, studying them across a number of disciplines as well. So can you talk about as well in terms of that, you know, multifaceted aspect, what fields of study are represented in this handbook? Sure. So um, as we will talk about in a few moments, the handbook is separated into different sections. So there are a couple of sections which focus on perhaps the more traditional business disciplines, looking at things like um, management, marketing, human resources, that sort of thing. But there's also a, a different approach in a number of the other chapters. So looking at maybe sociology uh, and anthropology, getting at that cultural thing and, and what communities and societies make of festivals. There's also a a geographic element, so uh, considering place, um, particularly human geography or cultural geography. Uh, But there's also a couple of chapters which look at different things like gender uh, and some of the cultural aspects as well. So it really does bring together a very disparate group of researchers into one volume. Right, and I guess collectively with these, you know, very like you're getting at very diverse chapters, what do they together contribute to the existing body of research on festival studies? Well, I think the answer to that is really probably what I just said, is that it's, it's that idea of bringing together disparate strands of knowledge. So 
previously, uh, the, the work, let's say, for example, the work in anthropology on festivals might not have been as well known to those people who are in the business discipline studying festivals. So I think it's really the, the value of the handbook is to to provide almost a one-stop shop for people who are researching festivals from all those different perspectives to come together and see how other people have been researching festivals and to perhaps get some inspiration and some some information and knowledge from the different ways that we can look at festivals. Right. It puts all those seemingly distant but not so distant fields of study in conversation with each other more. Yes. Um, I think it's great. Um, So shifting gears now to the core of our talk today, the handbook's content, um, we'll start more at the macro level here, right? So the broader impact of festivals that comes out in some of the different sets of chapters or the sections. Uh, And we'll start with, of course, the one called sustainability. And the opening chapter of that section titled Valuing the Impacts of Festivals sets up you know, the following chapters quite well in that it states, quote, there is widespread agreement that events should be assessed in respect of their economic, social slash cultural, and environmental impacts. So can you talk about how those three areas of sustainability are discussed in that opening section? Sure. So the way we approached that was initially to have one chapter on each, one on economic, one on social, and one on uh, environmental sustainability. But actually, we had two really, really good chapters on social sustainability. So that's slightly uh, more detail on that. But so the the, the, the chapter on economic um, evaluations or economic sustainability looks at how we carry out the economic evaluations of festivals. So I did speak about how important uh, festivals can be for economic development. But there have been some criticisms as to the way economic impact is, is assessed. And so that chapter really looks at the different models for assessing economic impact and tries to come to terms with some of the difficulties in assessing that. Um, the sociocultural chapters, so there's, there's two chapters, one is a little bit more theoretical and one is more case study applied, but that looks at um, how festivals affect the people that live in the communities that host them. So that might be in terms of some of the negative impacts about, you know, maybe that it's busy and they might not necessarily want visitors all the time, but also some of the positive impacts that can be the result of hosting festivals, things like um, community celebration, bringing people together to, you know, to for, for social cohesion purposes. And then the environmental chapter looks at uh, primarily some of the negative environmental impacts of festivals around pollution and waste, um, carbon emissions, things like that, but also um, make some good suggestions for ways that festivals can be more aware of the negative impacts that they're having on the environment and also uh, suggestions for ways to minimize some of those uh, negatives. Gotcha. Yeah, that section definitely does. It's very well balanced and it really kind of lays out pros and cons, I guess, of festivals. It's a very honest section, I guess, in (laughs) that way. which is good. And then also, you know, moving on to the other kind of more big picture section about festivals titled strategic use of festivals. Um, What do we learn from the case studies in those chapters about festivals as quote devices for economic and social development? So I guess the, the, the point of that section is to, emphasize the fact that although 
it's important to have festivals for traditional reasons. And in other parts of the handbook, we, we do talk about that. Um, there are many festivals that are created for specific purposes. Uh, I sort of alluded to that before. They're created to uh, bring in tourists or to, you know, to, for, for other social purposes. So the, the chapters in this section really give examples of how festivals have been used for a range of really diverse purposes. So, for example, one of the chapters is based in Northern Ireland and looks at how festivals have been used. Uh, they've been created and used to help build bridges between the different sections of the Northern Irish community that previously were in civil war, um, not for a long time now, but there, there are still um, divisions. And so the chapter looks at how the festival has been contributing to building bridges between these divided communities. Uh, a similar sort of chapter, um, different context, looks at Serbia and looks at um, the, the, the post-war, uh, post-Balkan War, again, you know, sort of 20-odd years since the war, but still uh, divided communities, and looks at how festivals have been helping to encourage tourists to come back, uh, even though perhaps, you know, Serbia might still suffer a little bit in terms of its destination image. Uh, it's, uh, the, the chapter looks at how festivals have helped to, to counter some of that. Um, some of the chapters look um, take a much more critical approach so, for example, um, one of the chapters is based in Macau and looks at uh, some of the concerns that local residents have about the, the use of their traditional festivals for tourism purposes. So what happens when you take a more traditional festival and actually try to reshape it to encourage tourists? And does that have a negative impact on the experience of that festival for those people who consider it to be part of their culture and their tradition? Uh, there's another couple of examples uh, in that section. So we've got a, a chapter that looks at a pride parade in Northern Ireland, and sorry, excuse me, in New Zealand, that one, and looks at some of the conflicts within the organisation of the festival itself, as well as the conflicts between the festival and some elements of the community. And the final chapter in that section looks at how festivals can be used to help to increase social connectivity and as a result of that social connectivity, they can help to boost resilience. And that uh, example also comes from New Zealand and looks at uh, a, more, a slightly more rural uh, festival. So some of the festivals are city festivals, but this one's particularly a rural festival and looks at the importance of festivals uh, in building that social connectivity, which is uh, a very important aim of local government. Yeah, and as you were talking, I kind of thought of, I guess, a follow-up question is something you just brought up there. And I guess I can ask you this maybe as a whole about the handbook. Uh, what do you see operating differently maybe in more urban versus rural festivals? Um, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, in the urban environment, there are often uh, different aims. So governments or event funders or event organizers often have slightly different aims. Uh, so in the urban environment, it's quite often around things like multiculturalism or trying to encourage tolerance of diversity in diverse communities. Whereas in the rural environment, it's more often about making sure that uh, in the face of a number of changes to a rural environment, you know, depopulation, uh, declining numbers of agricultural uh, employment positions, etc. In the rural environment, it's often about keeping people together and maintaining that social identity and social cohesion. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, that helps a lot. I was just thinking about how that impacts the use of festivals Mm -hmm. in that way, um, place and whatnot. Um, And, you know, that's a very much social, cultural, heavy section, as well as the another section that comes up too, titled Cultural Perspectives on Festivals. Um, and you started getting at this a little bit at the beginning, but just kind of rehash this a little bit. You know, what do we learn about traditions, heritage, and so on in the cultural perspectives on festivals section? Um, so this, I think, I'm sure I shouldn't have favorites. It's like children, you shouldn't have favorites. But I think this might be one of my favorite sections um, because it brings together examples from all over the world and so different such different contexts, yet so many similar issues, which I think is fascinating. So um, one of the examples comes from Iceland and looks at the traditional horse gathering festival in Iceland. And it's a very important part of the the farming and and cultural heritage in Iceland. Yet the festivals have been amended or altered to try to encourage tourists. And what the chapter looks at is what that means to the people who are still taking part in the festival as part of their traditions and their culture and how it can have a negative impact on the the cultural importance and the cultural heritage of the event by the changes that have been brought to make it more suitable for tourists and also from the perspective that the tourists perhaps don't necessarily recognise the importance of the cultural heritage that they're witnessing and consider it just to be something to do on a Saturday afternoon, which I think is a really interesting point. Uh, another um, two examples which look at similar, similar issues but from a different perspective, uh, one comes from Ghana and one comes from Mexico, and they're looking at the difference between a traditional festival and a festival that is new but staged to look as though it was traditional which I think is really interesting so uh, the Ghana example looks at you know a a very old traditional festival that's been running for many many hundreds of years Uh, you know unofficially it's not not been organized as a festival it just is some as a tradition Um, but comparing and contrasting that with something that the the government have implemented as a brand new product but I've tried to make it look like the traditional festival um, which I think is it, it brings up all sorts of interesting questions about whether that's whether that's a good thing because it's spreading knowledge and awareness of the traditions, or whether that's a bad thing because it's diluting the meaning of the actual tradition. Um, in also in that section, we've got a, a chapter from India which looks at how festivals can be used to empower communities. 
uh, which is a, a, a different approach, but again, looking at a traditional cultural festival, but how that can be used to to empower the communities, particularly women in the communities, uh, in terms of uh, being able to celebrate uh, in public. We've got an example from Turkey as well, which is uh, looks at the it looks at how the festival is perceived. Uh, and what the meanings of the festival are, which I think is also an interesting topic. is is quite different from trying to understand the value of a festival or how much money it brings in, but try to actually pin down what the festival means. And then we've got an example from Australia, which looks at uh, Indigenous festivals and looks at the importance of cultural celebrations in protecting uh, Indigenous heritage. Uh, as well as uh, spreading knowledge about the indigenous heritage as well. Yeah, and I was thinking about with all those different case studies, I think connecting it to the present, actually, you know, I guess I'll ask you this as well. How do you see, you know, the current, like, inability to travel much to these festivals or even to put them on? Like, how do you see that affecting these, like, more traditional festivals that, you know, in the community, it's their heritage and tradition they're celebrating, but then they can't also really easily share that knowledge like you're getting at anymore in the festival space. How do you see that being affected now? Um, that's a really good question. I think that for uh, a festival that is held purely for traditional cultural reasons, Having to skip it for one year or maybe even two years probably will be sad for people, but I think that they will then pick it back up again because it's an intrinsic part of who they are. I actually think that some of the festivals that were designed simply to bring in tourists are much less likely to be able to survive because they don't have any other reason for being. So they're there to bring in money. And if you cancel them for a year or two years, there's no money, there's no capital, they can't continue. So actually, interestingly, I think that although it will matter to people that they're not able to celebrate their culture and their traditions, I think that once we're allowed to again, I think these things will come back a little bit more easily than some of the festivals that were created simply to bring in tourists or to to make money. Mm, That's interesting. So intentionality, I guess, has a lot to do with that. Yeah, I think so. That makes sense. Um, and then going on now away from some of the big picture portions of the handbook, we also have that balanced with some of the more behind the scenes aspects of festivals, like, kind of like what we were just talking about. What's the intention? What goes into putting on a given festival, right? And the first section that kind of falls under this umbrella, to me at least, was the festival management section. So in that part, what issues are raised? So the festival management section, um, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just an operational guide to how to run a festival, because there's lots of those out there. So, you you know, if you want to see a guide to how to pick up, how to uh, run an event, you can pick that up off the shelf. So what I wanted to look at was some of the specific aspects to festivals that are perhaps not as well covered in the existing how-to type guides. So, for example, we have got a chapter on volunteer management so many, many events and festivals rely almost entirely on volunteers, and yet they're quite often not particularly well managed. Um, festival organizers not necessarily um, very good at HR. Uh, so we uh, we have a chapter on volunteers and looking at a, a scheme that, that has been running 
to try and encourage uh, training, but also retention, recruitment and retention of volunteers. So that, I think, is quite, uh, has quite a, a significant practical use. Um, we also looked at uh, innovation in festivals and looking at where the innovation and management might come uh, which is also, again, quite practical and, and quite useful, I think, for, for both academics and practitioners to think about what might be coming next and you know, how we might look at being a little bit more uh, innovative. Uh, one of the chapters looks at a, a significant management issue for festivals, which is um, alcohol and drug misuse at festivals and events. Um, so that was actually written by uh, the, the contributor is a practicing nurse as well as being a a nursing academic and uh, I think that's that's just a really really important chapter to think about uh, something that for example maybe the anthropologists and the geographers would never really contemplate but actually is something that's just really important um, and we've also got a chapter there on social media and how social media is changing the way we manage festivals so social media also rocks up in the marketing section but in terms of management it changes the way we sell tickets, the way we, you know, the, the way we um, get people to swipe in, for example, or, you know, we get people to to log on vers- via social media and apps and things like that. So there's some, I, I would say that the management section is one of the more practical sections, but as I said, I didn't want it to be fully just operational and how to run an event. Right. Again, it seems like the one of the goals here was just breadth and, you know, with with trying to reach as many folks as you can. Um, and again, I'm always about like connecting to the present here, you know, and the like thinking about the management side, what do you think, going back to the idea of innovation, what innovations are festival managers or people at work in festivals, what do you think they're having to do right now? Um, <laughs> apart from panic, um, I think a lot of them <clears throat> are, are trying to really come to terms with the digital space. Um, and I think a lot of festivals have perhaps dabbled in that space in the past. Uh, maybe they've done a little bit of recording uh, and put it online, or maybe they've done a little bit of um, broadcasting live, uh, particular music acts, for example. But overall, I think the festival industry has not been particularly good at using digital technologies. Um, and now, obviously, uh, it's become essential. So I think there are a number of uh, number of festival organisers who are managing the process. Um, but I think at the same time, there are a lot of organisers who are simply drowning and just don't know where to go next, which is a, a significant problem for our, our festivals industry as a whole. Right, definitely. I've uh, been thinking about that. And even for the people studying them too. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, that kind of ties, I imagine a big part of like you were getting at right now, people are definitely having to think about is, you know, the marketing component, um, which takes us to our next sort of backstage section. Right. So mm-hmm. what kinds of sponsoring and branding matters are discussed in that section? Uh, so we've got a section which we've sort of generally called marketing, but that does, of course, include sponsoring and branding as well as uh, a couple of other bits and pieces. So really, um, the chapters in this section take more of a sort of a stakeholder approach. So looking at the different stakeholders that are involved in an event. So uh, sponsors are a really important part of that, but also the media, 
and also just any other way of getting the branding and awareness out there. So there is a chapter on social media. Again, this one focuses on social media marketing and um, personalization, uh, various other sort of new technologies that we can use to reach people via social media. Um, but there's also uh, there's a there's a chapter on on sponsors and how sponsors are uh, the importance of finding sponsors that match uh, the the product that the festival is offering uh, and the importance of being able to offer something to a sponsor that is uh, attractive to the sponsor, but at the same time meeting that challenge, which is that the sponsor shouldn't really be dictating what happens in the festival. And we have seen uh, a few examples uh, in the book, but also um, external to the book, where uh, festivals have changed their sort of strategic direction in order to meet the needs of particular sponsors. And then when the sponsors have dropped out, that leaves the festival in a very difficult position. So the the angle or the approach in, in the chapter on sponsorship also looks at the challenges of working with sponsors. Um, there's a, also a chapter in the marketing uh, section which looks at what we might call boosterism, which is that idea of using the festival as a way to boost tourism. And so the importance of wrapping the festival and, and its its image in with the, the destination and the destination image as well. Uh, and that's, it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's a very instrumental thing. So it's, it's seeing a festival very much as a vehicle to bring in tourists. Uh, and I, there is a lot of that getting about. Uh, so it's not, I'm not trying to suggest that that's not the right thing to do. But it's certainly not right for all festivals because some festivals are, as we've discussed, created for many, many different reasons. There's also a section in that chapter. Uh, sorry, I'm going to rephrase that. There's also a chapter in that section which looks at the use of cultural icons and attaching them to festivals. And the the example comes from Mexico and it's uh, about Cervantes and it's about using uh, the, the, the name Cervantes and associating it with the festival in a place that has no actual connection with Cervantes historically. So it's uh, about appropriation of cultural uh, I, uh, cultural icons and using them to market the, the festival and using it as an attraction to get people there. And it's, I just think that's a fascinating case study. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, tensions, I think, that happen in some of those festival spaces. Their spaces where cultural expression shines and yeah, definitely can create some problematic situations sometimes, but that's just how it goes. Yeah. Um, I actually want to shift to, cause we've been talking a lot about like both in the marketing and the management section, the use of like social media and the tech, you know, in the present. So I'd like to talk about now festival future section actually um just because i think that kind of ties with what we've been talking about mm-hmm. um given the impact of COVID 19 on these events from the managerial and marketing side and you know this uncertain future of festivals i guess maybe from that section specifically are there any takeaways that you think might help festival scholars and organizers navigate the present circumstances um Yes and no. Uh, so when the, the chapters in this section were written, obviously we had no idea about pandemics, so they don't specifically talk to that issue. But I think you're right to say that there are probably learnings, things that we could we could draw upon. 
Um, so one of the chapters actually looks at education. It, so it looks at um, how we educate festival and event managers of the future. And the chapter actually looks at the importance of virtual reality in education. And I think that that actually has probably something that we could be considering quite strongly. I mean, at the moment, I'm involved in teaching, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, and because we can't teach on campus or face-to-face anymore, we're, we're doing a lot of online teaching. And there are some strengths to online teaching, but we're not really particularly expert at it. Some of us, I'm speaking for myself here, but I think a few others too, is that we're not necessarily experts at online teaching. And so I think research that looks into how we can use online technologies, including virtual reality, but better in our education uh, could be very valuable. In terms of the events themselves, um, one of the, the chapters looks at, uh, so it looks at how future events might use digital technologies. And they talk about a range of a range of options. So things like live casts, where you obviously you have the performer, but no audience, but you are live casting, you know, so you're broadcasting live, uh, usually via the internet. And that would work for some, for a, a, a festival that has a performative element. So let's say, for example, for a play, or it might work for a music festival where you can actually, where you don't need the audience live. Although traditionally you would want to have the audience live, technically you can still do the performance and you can then uh, simply broadcast that live. Um, there's also uh, a notion of networked performance. Now, networked performance, I think, um, was probably something that hardly anyone had given any thought to. Uh, what probably until the COVID pandemic struck and suddenly we're all doing network performances but we maybe just don't know because we haven't used that terminology but that's where you have people who are um, alone uh, for whatever reason quarantining or whatever other reason um, performing but that that is then networked with a load of other people who are doing the performances so you get virtual choirs you can get virtual plays or you know virtual virtual anything you can think of really where everyone who's taking part is located uh, separately but we actually bring the performance together via the internet so uh, as I say not something that I think people had really thought about much it was mentioned in that chapter as a it was actually quite a short section in that chapter because I don't think people really thought that it was a big issue but suddenly it's happening all over the place so you know you can see uh, whether that's very informally Uh, you know, just people getting together and doing some singing, or whether that's been done much more formally uh, to replace some of the music festivals, for example, that we might have seen. So I think that there there are some ideas in there, in in those chapters, which uh, suddenly have taken on much more relevance than perhaps they would have done otherwise, which is interesting. Yeah, that's something uh, I've been seeing a lot of discussion of in festival studies is, you know, it's the pandemic isn't a good thing, but it is an interesting shift for sure in like the overall paradigm, yeah. I guess. Um, and definitely having to rethink pretty much everything. Um, shifting gears now away from sort of like the tech side of things for a minute here. You know, we've talked a lot about about what goes into putting on a festival. I think more than anything else, but we also, as you mentioned at the beginning, have to consider the people going to these events. So what do we learn about perspectives of festival attendees in the festival experiences section? 
So this section doesn't really look at the traditional measures of you know satisfaction or loyalty or value for money or anything like that because we were interested in getting into sort of deeper issues of what it what it's like and what it means to attend an event. Um, so one of the chapters looks at quality of life, uh, particularly looks at how attending events and festivals can enhance a family's quality of life. And so that chapter was written by uh, an author who has a young family themselves and uh, who had noted that festivals can provide that opportunity for some family time where you are not telling people to tidy the room and, you know, not worrying about whether somebody's eating their vegetables, but actually whether you where you are just spending a little bit of enjoyment time with your family and that that can really enhance quality of life. So that chapter looks at um, what it is about festivals and the time out of time at festivals that can help with that, but also highlights some of the challenges as well. Um, one of the chapters is written from a very interesting perspective. It's called A Confessional Tale. Uh, it, it's just a different way of presenting the information, but it looks at um, social capital and it looks at bridging and bonding. So um, from the perspective of the attendee experiencing the festival, bonding social capital is where you spend time with like-minded people, which is usually a very important part of attending a festival. You are often attend with friends or with families or with your partner. And so the experience is a bonded and shared one. But the the chapter also looks at bridging social capital, which is that idea that you make new connections and bridge to new groups of people. And the chapter suggests that there's lots of opportunities at festivals, particularly multi-day festivals where there's overnight camping, for example. So lots of opportunities to actually meet new people and to expand your circle. Uh, which is, I think is a, a really useful um, sort of theoretical framework to take to, to, help, to help to understand how people experience festivals. One of the chapters looks at how attendees use technology to enhance the experience at festivals. So it looks at um, apps and social media and how the attendees use that to to either to enhance their experience or in some cases it. it can detract from the experience. Spending too much time on Facebook or, you know, too much time looking stuff up in the app might mean that you're actually not experiencing what's right in front of you. Another chapter looks at uh, it looks at the attendee perspective, but also looks at local residents and looks at how the experience of having a festival in town can be very different for local residents than from attendees. But it it looks at the perspective of local residents who attend the festival. So technically, they're wearing two hats. They are local residents, but they're also festival attendees. And the chapter looks at whether there's a difference in how they perceive that experience and how they enjoy or otherwise that experience compared to those people who have traveled and are perhaps tourists who've come to attend the festival. And finally, in this section, there's uh, a chapter on uh, the, the, the... it is from a feminist perspective and it looks at gendered experiences of festivals. So it looks at differences in experiencing festivals from a, from a gender point of view and takes more of a critical feminist approach to looking at um, uh, how feminism has impacted festivals and uh, investigates a little bit um, female-only festivals and uh, generally takes a much more sort of critical approach to, to the, the female experience of attending festivals. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how much how much those chapters explore positionality and all of that, and yeah. kind of teases out, blurs those lines between categorization, I guess, of what it means to be an attendee, and or like you're getting at with 
that one that chapter before last um tourist local what does that really mean yeah uh, interesting section um and so i've asked you a lot about kind of the general sections and the process of doing this handbook but was there anything else about this collection that you thought our listeners should know I don't know if there's anything that they should know other than obviously it's fabulous, but um, I think it's just a really, and Routledge I think do this quite well with the handbooks, it's a really good one-stop shop for somebody who wants to see all the diversity that is contained within the idea of festival studies. So if people consider if, you know studying a festival as only being an anthropological thing, then this is going to really open their eyes to a lot of the other stuff. You know, it, Conversely, if somebody's only ever thought of a festival as a way to, to, to make money or to bring in visitors, I think it would be really um, useful for them to think about some of those other perspectives, to look at the culture, the tradition, the heritage, and also the social impacts of festivals. So I guess that that's my, my strongest selling point for the book is, is the diversity of perspectives that are in one book. Yes, and I would also agree it is fabulous. So we're on the same page. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dr. Amir, for talking about the book with us um, and joining us on this episode of New Books and Celebration Studies. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. And uh, do you have any other projects that you're working on right now? One of the things I'm working on at the moment um, is looking at those social impacts, uh, more of the intangible social impacts. So things like social cohesion, social capital, civic pride, sense of community and sense of belonging, and trying to understand how we might begin to assess what these things are, what they look like, uh, and how we might measure them, not particularly because I want to have a measure of them, but because it would be good to know how we can enhance them. And so we need to have a baseline for levels of social cohesion uh, or you know levels of of feeling of of belonging before we can say whether an event or a festival can enhance that. So these intangible things are very difficult to measure. So that's that's a project I'm working on at the moment. Cool. I look forward to seeing where that goes. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> you're like, yeah, working on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, great. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. And we are wrapping up an interview as a recap, Dr. Judith Mayer, about the Rutledge Handbook of Festivals published in 2019. And this is Emily Allen. I'll see you next time here on New Books and Celebration Studies, a podcast series from the New Books Network. Bye for now, folks. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.